to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. My guest today is a writer, speaker, podcast host, and former missionary who's passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith. Megan Chance's new book, Women Rising, just released last week, and we actually recorded this episode on her book release day. Our conversation was originally recorded as an IG Live, so if you listen to it there, this is a cleaned up version of that same conversation. If you missed it on IG, you can listen here, but I'll warn you the sound quality isn't perfect because we recorded on both IG and Zoom at the same time and things got a little fuzzy. In our conversation, Megan shares her story of being a missionary for years, working with sexually exploited and oppressed women all over the globe. She befriended women who had survived sex trafficking, female genital mutilation, and violence so extreme Megan wondered at their survival. But it was through listening to their stories that Megan started to notice a pattern that pointed to systems of injustice that held women back, systems that her own childhood church had taught and in which she was complicit. Returning to the United States, Megan became keenly aware of how these teachings and messages surrounding women in her own upbringing were part of the problem. In the process, she began to find her voice, one that spoke out against injustice and moved her into tension with the Christian community. Listen in as Megan boldly calls Christian women to amplify their voices for righteousness and calls the church to listen. Megan, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast Instagram live session. Thank you. Oh gosh, my dogs just started barking. Um, Thank you for having me. Someone just showed up at my house. Um, it could be, it's actually, I can see right now. It's one of my friends. Um, my husband will get them. I am so sorry. It's been a, it's a hot mess this morning. Uh, today my book comes out and my dog is getting, or my husband is getting those dogs to stop barking. I'm so excited for you. Congratulations on your book launch day today, Megan. Oh my gosh. How does it feel? Um, it doesn't feel real. It feels a little hectic as you can tell. Um, so that's just that, but it's a hectic day. I'm excited to be here. This is happening. I have never written a book. I don't plan to. I have heard that it's kind of like birthing a child, like the process, the agony, the pain, like just, but a long, long, long childbirth. Yes. Well, I've never had a child. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I can make that comparison, but I will say it has been agonizing and long, <laughs> but it, it has also been a hundred percent worth it. Um, because man, like the reviews I'm getting from people who have read the book it has just been so powerful for them. So that has been a real gift and I'm really grateful for that. And for those of you that don't know, this is Megan's book. It's called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. And I highly recommended it. I finished it last night and I saw so much of my story and your story, but more so I think I saw my daughter's story in your story with just the mission element, the church, all of that stuff. And so it hit me heavy and hard, but your message is so good. And it's such an inspiration to us as women to keep on using our voices and speaking up. Um, I think like you, there's times, and I'm going to get teary eyed when you feel like the cost is too high to use our voice. Like we've been silent. We've been the good girls. We've been the perfect go by the rules girls. And we start speaking up and we start getting rejected or harsh words and it's hard. And you start questioning like, wait, is this what I'm doing? Like it was easier to just comply. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that's, I mean, that's been such a, probably one of the most challenging parts about this journey is learning to use your voice and having, you know, which took a journey in and of itself, right? Because I was raised in a context where women's voices weren't valued that as a woman, I'm, I was told to be quiet and sit down and be silent. Um, and, uh, to push through that and to finally find my voice only to have friends and family be disappointed in me, um, say that they can't be associated with me because I'm tied to the liberal agenda. It's been incredibly, difficult. Um, but it is so worth it at the other side. And someone asked me the other day, like what has been the most rewarding part? And they, and I think the most rewarding part is that I was able to find my integrity because Mm -hmm. for so long, when I, you know, was in this context and choosing not to use my voice, I wasn't living with integrity because I was constantly trying to make those around me, you know, feel good or say that I agreed when I didn't agree. And so sometimes I would lie about the things that I believed because I wanted acceptance more than I wanted truth. And I've really come to the other side and say, truth is more important. And there's something that Glennon Doyle says that um, I love and something I mentioned in my book is that um, uncomfortable lies are, or sorry, uncomfortable truths are better than comfortable lies. And, um, I think that's something that we all need to remember going forward, especially as women, when our, our voices have been held back. Yeah. And that's why I'm just, uh, I'm grateful for you. And I think as women using to use our voices, like we need other women in with like journeys and minds to keep encouraging us. Um, you know, like I said, I finished your book last night and we're going to dive into your story, but right now I'm just feel like I'm having a conversation with you before yeah, the actual podcast. But last night I needed your words in your final chapters because you talked about that rejection. Like for so long, we've been taught to shrink and stay small. And a lot of that was so we could please people. I mean, I'm a, such a recovering people person. And when you start using your voice, you're going to let down a lot of people that you once look to for your affirmation and your worth. And it's really hard to, um, lose friends and lose family. And, you know, the, me and my daughter shared a podcast on uh, Sunday and I already just started feeling, getting the pushback and ramifications from that Mm -hmm. for using our voices. And all day yesterday, I was second guessing myself, like, maybe we shouldn't have said those things. Maybe we were too harsh. Maybe we did hurt feeling. And it's like, your book just reminded me, no, like this is, if we are really going to empower women, cause this is what this is about. Not just two white women, like mm-hmm. lifting up their voices. This is like empowering women worldwide and globally mm-hmm. and in the church that have been hurt. Um, so you have to keep stepping, moving forward and using that voice, even when it's really hard. So yeah. thank you, Megan. Well, thank you. I'm so glad I'm in. So maybe you thought it was timely. Um, it was. And I told my daughter this morning, I'm like, you're going to need to pre- read this read this book. I think it will speak to you a lot. Um, so I want to get started in your journey of where you finally came to the point of writing this book. Before we do, something I want to say that I just listened to your podcast too that you did with your husband, which I recommend to everybody. Um, and something you said at the beginning, and I'm like, I need to start saying that. And I want to say that today why this live skate thing scares the crap out of me because I don't want to say the wrong thing. (laughs) And when you're recording a podcast and you can edit, we can edit out those wrong things. So 
I want to preface kind of like how you did in your, your podcast that we are still two privileged white girls learning and we have a long way to go and just for forgiveness and grace for if we misspeak or say the wrong things. And I think both of us are all about being called out. Um, and both have been called out. (laughs) Good. I was, um, there's a book called mean white supremacy and it says, if you're not getting called out, you're not doing the work. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That book, I think we both treasure that book and have learned so much because you mentioned it in your book and I'm like, oh, that is one I keep going back to for humility and learning. Um, so that's the like cautionary note in this, like we can't edit anything. So I say somebody's name wrong or, oh, good Lord, do something wrong. Just give me grace, but feel free to call me out. So, okay. Names, Megan, say your last name. So I make sure I get that right. It's Chance. Okay. Megan, let's just start out. Tell me where we jumped in, but we're going to backtrack a little bit. Tell me where you live, your day-to-day life. Not really your whole story yet, but just who Megan is every day. Um, My name is Megan. Like you said, Um, I live in Athens, Georgia with my husband. We're coming up on four years of marriage on Wednesday. Um, No, Tuesday, Thursday. Sometime this week. Okay. Yeah. Sometime this week. Um, and we have two dogs as you have already heard them. Um, it, they, you know, they're usually quiet for podcasts unless someone walks into my house, which is what just happened. Um, I'm sure it was a very sweet gesture, but I probably should have told her, Hey, I'm recording the podcast. Um, I live with a pretty tight knit community here in Athens. Um, but I am a podcast host. I host, I'm a fellow podcaster. I host the podcast, uh, faith and feminism. And I am also an author. My very first book ever, ever has come out today. And I am feeling all the feels. I I can't, I can't believe it. It's been such a long time in coming and it's been such a journey, um, to process this. this, Or five years ago, you turned in your first draft, right? So my first draft, I started it five years ago and it was so bad. I know a lot of authors will say that, but I'm like, no, this was like height of, I mean, maybe not the height, but it was very white savory. It was very, I just, it just showed that I wasn't doing any work besides feminism. It was, I wasn't doing any work to realize my blind spots when it came to white supremacy or white saviorism. And, um, my very first draft was, I tried to take myself out of the story and tried to tell the story of others, women, but I had someone who was actually Amina B or Amina Brown. Mm-hmm. I heard her speak at a uh, conference and this was like very shortly after I wrote my first draft. Okay. And she said, the only story we can tell is our own. And I felt so convicted because I was trying to tell other people's stories and that wasn't my story to tell. Um, the only story I could tell was my own. And so I rewrote it several years later, um, with, with it being a memoir about my journey. And I, and I'm so glad I did that and realized that because I think through the mistakes and missteps, uh, missteps that I've made through my personal experience growing up in the evangelical church, I think so many, and what I've heard is so many women will have related with it. Like this happened to me. This, this is what I experienced. This is a mistake I made. Um, and so my hope is that no matter what your upbringing is or what your upbringing has been, like you can see my yourself in my story and 
and uh, learn that you can still grow and you can still do better and you still can make mistakes um, and how important it is to continue to advocate for justice because I think so many of us are afraid, like you said, because we're afraid of making mistakes. We're afraid of being called out. And um, it's so important to do the work anyways because it's not it's not about us. You know, it's about, it's about a just and equitable world. It's about, um, you know, I think when we read the gospels, like what is the gospel, but like a proclamation of justice, of equity, of abundance for all people. And for so long, for so long that has been denied to women and queer people and BIPOC people. And I didn't realize when I started this book that I was one of the oppressors, mm-hmm. um, that I was one of the people causing harm to other people. And as I started to learn this, it was just a journey of repentance. It was a journey of having my eyes opened and hoping that other people can, can join me in a journey of repentance. Um, so something I talk about a lot is my complicity, not only in the patriarchy, but also in white supremacy. And that's a big point I want to talk about today, because I think again, similar parts of our journey is we became outspoken in the feminism aspect and the patriarchy in the church, but not I know this because of your book and also my own story, not realizing my own complacency and just like the whole white supremacy. Like we are part of upholding that me and you white girls. We are, even though, yes, we have been victims of sexism, sexual harassment. My daughter has, she's still been part of upholding white supremacy. I mean, that's hard to say. And that's where that white fragility comes in, but you have to realize that before you really can grow and move forward. And I think that is just a, a part of your story I didn't realize so deeply and that I really appreciate you sharing in your book. Mm-hmm. So we'll dive into that. But I guess I usually have people start deep, like way back in their childhood. But I think for the sake of this conversation and your book, we'll start because you you interweave your childhood and your upbringing in the church mm-hmm. into your story. Mm-hmm. So let's start. You're out of college. You've got a job you don't love. Your yeah. life has been focused on missions work. Like that was where you found your um, acceptance, your approval. Like as a woman, you couldn't preach in the church. So mm-hmm. you could on the mission field. Like, yeah. God, that hurts to say, because that is my daughter's story. Um, so take it from there because the world race becomes big part of your story. Yeah. So like you already said, I was raised in a conservative evangelical context. I'm sure many people watching this know um, about purity culture, kind of being told that my body is an object that needs to be hidden. Less less men do bad things and uh, do harm people with their bad thoughts or whatever. And so this idea that I was responsible for how men thought, but also being told that I was supposed to ultimately submit to them, which is funny. It's like almost like the church is preaching that um, men are supposed to be charged in charge of everything except their sexual urges. Right. Um, and so that was just like, um, even when I was in this deep, I, you know, I was like, I don't think this is right, but I hadn't been exposed to anything else. And so, like you said, um, I went to school for call art, for journalism, worked for a newspaper, hated it. And then I worked for a bank and I hated it. <laughs> And I really wanted to serve God because I had this idea 
that I had been taught my whole life that, um, I was bad, like our theology, this kind of absolute depravity gospel, like humans are the worst people ever. And the only thing that makes us kind of okay is Jesus in us. And, um, that's what I believed about myself. And I thought, how, how can I be loved? How can I be good? Well, the only way I know how to do this given my sex is to go on and do missions work because I wanted to be seen as good and holy and doing good work. And and in so many ways, um, that was barred for me in the evangelical church. And so, um, I started, I joined a mission trip called the world race. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's 11 countries, 11 months. And very quickly I was confronted um, with oppression of women. I saw women who had survived female genital um, mutilation, or I just was told yesterday by, um, a listener. So getting called out that female genital cutting is a better term. I haven't had time to research that yet because, um, it happened last night at like 8 PM and I, today's my book launch. So I will do research on that, but I was being encountered, um, a, a procedure where women or young girls, I should say, had their external genitalia removed and them asking questions if this was normal and hand in hand with these teachings, um, came the idea that women should be in the home, which I was familiar with, uh, women should stay home. And, and, um, it was taken into extreme where women, girls weren't supposed to get an education. And so, um, so you're you're seeing your eyes are opening to these other countries where it's the worst of the worst. I mean, worst you're working with sex trafficking, Mm -hmm. women, women that are in sex trafficking, girls getting the the female, um, genital mutilation or cutting, um, like you're seeing it all, your eyes are being opened. Um, but gradually you're starting to see your own story and the complacency and you're really good at, I mean, I don't want any way to say like, you're comparing, like my story is just as bad as theirs. Yeah. You're talking, you're interweaving it to how the church upholds this and participates and we do too, when we don't speak up. One of the things you say, um, and I think this is when you got to Africa, you say, I was beginning to see that my sending organization world race had trained me in the wrong things. I didn't need to be taught how to pray. I needed to be trained on anti-racism and from those who lived it. I didn't need to be trained on how to give a sermon. I needed to be trained out of my white saviorism. I didn't need to be fed unfamiliar foods. I needed to be taught to learn from and celebrate other cultures, not to force our way of things on them. And I think that started, at least from what you share in the book, kind of open your mind to like, what, what am I doing here? And am I doing more harm than good? And now you do t- say you're, you're a former missionary like that. <laughs> you realized your harm. So start sharing just a little bit of that and unraveling. Yeah. So I think, I mean, so I talked a little bit about female genital cutting and how that, like I was being awakened, like you said earlier, we are we started in this work because we saw how women were oppressed. And that's at the beginning, I just saw how women were hurt. I didn't see again, my complicity in that. And I especially didn't see my complicity in white supremacy. And so, um, it was actually through, uh, you know, I talk about how my sending organization trained me in the wrong things. Um, but he, one of the found the founder of, uh, the world race told me to start an organization to kind of for lack of a better term, save these women and, and encouraged my white saviorism and put me in touch with a microfinance guy who like, cause I was reading a book called half the sky that talked about 
sometimes you can prevent violence against women by leveling the playing field in terms of um, like monetary equity. And so sometimes microloans actually cut down the rates of violence that women experienced. And so I thought, well, maybe this is a solution to the violence that many women are experiencing. But uh, the way the world race is set up, you're in a country for three to four weeks. And um, with the way that white culture, white evangelical culture is, we're kind of taught that like, if you pray for someone, you're changing their life. You're, you're fixing them. You're bringing it. There's this, there's definitely a Christian superiority. I have what you need. Let me give you what you need. And so that was totally my mindset. And so I got put in charge with our, put in touch with this guy who's in charge of microfinance and he called out my white saviorism so hard. And this was in, did he like ever Megan, I read that letter a couple of times and I'm like, God bless. He is so spot on, but man, yeah. I just feel every word that she yeah. got and how she feels because I think as white women, especially privileged middle upper class white women, like we, we want to help, like we wanted, and, and we think our intentions are so good. And we think that our, even though we deal with all the sexism and we mm. still think that our culture is the best and yeah. this white nationalism and we're going to save you and we're going to be, we know it best. I encourage y'all to get that book and read his letter, especially when you think like you want, when you're involved, if you're involved in mission work, there's good ways to do it, but he was just so spot on in his response. So yeah, I interrupted. Yeah. Keep, keep going. No, it's no, I mean, yeah. So like this was in 2012. So nearly a decade ago, um, no one was having a conversation about white saviors and that does not excuse it at all. Don't hear me saying that excuse me this is a completely I'm like what are you even talking about and I and I knew there was truth there I could tell there was truth in what he was saying but I was so lost and so confused because I was just behaving the way I'd been taught to behave but I was being encouraged to behave but he made me pause like what am I doing here am I helping someone is this more about me feeling good about myself or is it because I actually want to help these women and as I started to dive into that, I can't deny that a part of it was trying to be a good person. It was, um, I know anti-racism teachers talk about like doing the work isn't like a self-help thing for white folks. It's, it's actually about the liberation of others. And I was starting to have to confront that. Was I trying to help because I wanted to be good because I believed I wasn't good or was I trying to help because my liberation was tied up in theirs. And so there's an incredible quote that, um, by a indigenous activist in, um, Australia. And she says, if you have come to save me, you are wasting your time. But if you've come to, uh, because your liberation is bound up in mind, then let us work together. And I think that is what, I mean, if we're talking about the early suffragette movement, we as white women left black women behind and women didn't get the right or black women had their votes so heavily suppressed that most of them in the South didn't even get to vote until 1965 with the Civil Rights Act. And in so many ways, when people fight for liberation, they're fighting for their own liberation and then they stop there and they don't care about. But we have to understand that our liberation is tied together, that I am not free until she is free. I am not thriving unless they are thriving. And, and, and in so many ways, the way white women have um, in many ways profited off of the works of anti-racism teachers. So let's talk about um, when we're talking, oh, I forgot the, the name. 
Affirmative action. Yes. Okay. Yes. So affirmative action was designed to help more people of color come in, but it really benefited white women. And I think what we need to do is realize that like for so long, and there's an excellent book about this called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Have you oh, read yeah. that? Yes. So she talks about how poor rural uh, white people um, have the same needs essentially as, you know, working class black people, but they, ref- they vote against their rights. They vote for candidates that don't help them, that hurt them because the last thing they're holding on to is their whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so if we voted or like, you know, learned from people at the bottom or people who have been the most marginalized, that brings flourishing to all people. And this is what I've learned again and again. If we uh, elevate the the voices of those, like especially black women, but queer black women, any like anyone on the margins, then everyone flourishes. And so that's what I was beginning to learn is that um, I kind of had a feminism, you know, this right, you know, this idea that women need rights because I had experienced not only sexual assault and sexual harassment, but my voice being silenced for so long um, that I really was only concerned about my own liberation. But that doesn't get us anywhere. That leads us to where we are today with with a society that um, so many people are so concerned about their own liberation. And we have a broken society where so many people are so held back. And so getting my white saviorism called out was not easy. And it was so funny. I haven't talked to that man in 10 years. I guess it's nine years. And when I was writing this book, they're like, you need his permission (laughs) to publish his emails. And so I like stalked the internet. I'm like, I need to find Bobby Garner and like sending like messages to people on LinkedIn. And um, I finally got a hold of him and he, he, he obviously gave permission for me to include those emails, but he actually shared with me. I don't know if you remember uh, the story of the white missionary that um, started this like home for children and was doing medical procedures on children and a bunch of them died. That was like people in his network. And so he was like, very like, don't become one of these girls. And if I'm being honest, hearing that story, if we don't see each ourselves as white evangelical women in that story, then we're not listening because that was literally what we were conditioned to do. And so that doesn't, it doesn't absolve us at all, but it shows us what capable, like what harm we are capable of if we're not doing the work. And so he introduced me early on into my journey of this, this story, this issue of white saviorism. And as all journeys, it takes a while for those messages to sink in. And, um, anyway, so I, I continue my story, you know, I continue my walk and, and, uh, I think when I really realized the complicity of the evangelical church in the harm was, I think for a lot of people, when Trump got elected and it was like, Christians are, literally voting for the antithesis of Jesus. Like if if I thought of a man that was supposed to be the polar opposite of who Jesus was, that would be Trump. He's boastful. He's acquiring power. He is disrespectful. He's sexually assaulting women. He's racist, like all of these things. And yet I was being told 
that this was, this was the Christian way. And that's yeah. when I think I really realized we were so sick. And that was a huge turning point for me too. I mean, yeah. me and my daughter, like, wait a second, let's look at what is going on here actually. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. And I actually started going to therapy after that. Cause I was not okay. Um, and I think a lot of us weren't okay because right. we should have been okay because it felt like we had been lied to for our entire lives. You right. told me to care for these people. But the way you vote shows me, actually, you don't care at all. In fact, you are supporting a man that is oppressing them. And so that was the beginning. But I think it really hit home. I was working with women um, who were in the sex trade in uh, the Philippines. And many of these women um, were, you know, there's so many stories of how they end up there. Some of them are literally forced into the trade by their family. Um, A lot of them are trying to provide for their children and have no other way to provide because they might not have. Uh, you know, a formal education that a lot of employers require. Another thing that's driving a lot of women to be, you know, either some of them are, like I said, we could say sex trade. Some of them are being trafficked because um, there's these massive typhoons due to climate change. So we're talking about how this is all interconnected, why we need to care for our planet. But there's these massive typhoons that are wiping out entire provinces of the Philippines, these little islands. And the families who used to live off the land have had, you know, on these farms have had their livelihood completely destroyed destroyed and they'll send their oldest kids to the city and say, find a way, you know, we're starving, find a way to send home money. And, um, oftentimes that's how traffickers get them or how they might enter the sex trade, even if it's knowingly, because they have no other options to provide, to survive. And so, so often there's just this lack of choice. And so a lot of these women, um, in this scenario, this, these bars were catering to Western white men. Right. And you would go into, I mean, you share more details in the book because you would go in, you spent days and nights in these mm-hmm. bars where these women were sex trafficked, where mm-hmm. they were just proper. I mean, it's, it's hard yeah. to read. I can't imagine seeing it. But then when you start seeing your own self in some of this. So we are partnering with an organization that provided safe homes for these women if they wanted to leave and also a college education. Because like I said, what so many of these women just lack, boils down to a lack of choice. And not only is like this work really hard, but it's also extremely dangerous. Um, a lot of like, you'll hear stories. I mean, I hear a lot of stories probably because I am connected to people who work with women like this, but, um, these women experience violence. A woman that I worked with was murdered by a client and it's, it's dangerous and it's, it's white men. And you, yeah, that's, I mean, talk about, that's another really powerful point that the consumers, are typically white men. And we, neither one of you are uh, sort of like white men bashers. We're both married right. to great white men, but we really have to look at the demand. And that's something else that you bring out in your. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so we were there. So I, I yeah, I want to get into the demand and like this realization I had. So, um, I was there one night and, um, we were, it was, we were getting ready to leave this bar and, uh, this, this white man called us over and he's like, why are you here? And this is not the first time or the only time I've had interactions with John's. Um, they often go something like this, but this was the night that like broke something in me. So he called us over. He asked us why we were there. And we're like, we're partnering with a ministry that, you know, gives these women the opportunity to go to college if they want and pays for their dependents, gets them a safe house, all of this other stuff. And he's like, oh, that's great. And then we asked him why he was there. And he said, and I quote, I, um, 
women here are raised right. They respect me like I deserve to be respected. And he, this, and then he continued on this really long tirade about how women in the United States were too uppity. They didn't know their place and their place was to submit to men and respect them. And if he couldn't get that respect in the United States, then he traveled across the world to get that respect from a trafficked woman. And I remember as he was speaking, something sounded so familiar to me. And then it hit me that he had been talking just like all of those pastors uh, that I had grown up with, all of those marriage books, like love and respect that talk over and over and over again about a man's need for respect, a man's need for sexual availability. And I bought that book. It's, it's, that was hard reading. Cause I'm like, God, I, not only was I part of the white saviors and white supremacy, but I taught like, that's what I, your story and my daughters are very parallel, but my mothering her in this and teaching other women, like I, I taught that book. And it was that book that I was teaching that I got reprimanded because one session, my husband couldn't be there for the class we were leading. And I, so as a woman was the only one teaching it to men and women. And I got in trouble. And that's when I started questioning, like, wait, what? So anyway, you talk about that book and I'm like, dear God, I taught that book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, what you heard this man say, this John say was the same thing that so much is said in that book and in our white evangelical churches. And you started connecting. So I started connecting because not only had I been, not only had I been seeing around the world, the oppression of women hand in hand with these gender roles that I grew up with. But when he explicitly kept on talking about a man's need for respect, that's when it hit me like a pound of like a ton of bricks. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this, I am complicit. I have, and I mean, I didn't teach that book, but I was raised in that environment that that book, you know, was like gifted. I was at this time as, you know, engaged and about to be married. And, you know, people were recommending that book to me and it was just like, oh my gosh, like these men sound exactly like these evangelical pastors, like, why is that? And so I started doing some more research because I, I was immediately drawn into this, this concept that maybe we're complicit, maybe our gender roles have something to do with this. And as I did more research, that's what I found again and again and again, that, um, you know, there's a, um, a doctorate student in India and she, one of her, for her thesis, she interviewed hundreds of rapists. And what she found is that the gender roles in their society were responsible for this. It wasn't like these guys were, you know, climbing out of the swamp that these men were taught female submission, men outside being powerful, just like I was taught. And in fact, there was a massive, uh, news story back. And I think it was in uh, around 2012. And there was this woman who was raped to death on a public bus in India. And they interviewed her rapist. Like, why did you do this? What, what, what would motivate this, these men, a group of men on a public bus to rape this woman to death. And they said, because she should have been at home, keeping the home tidy. And that was how he, so I kept on connecting these other stories, these ideas that if women aren't uh, behaving to their prescribed gender role, then they are 
you can treat them with violence. And here's another story. I could literally go on all day about how this is present in the evangelical church, but I wrote an, I wrote an article in preparation for this book about how gender roles contribute to the abuse of women. The Christian post shared it. People got really angry, um, which maybe I shouldn't be surprised about, but I got an email from a man who told me that I needed to repent, um, that I needed to find Jesus. And I was going straight to hell as soon as I breathed my last breath. But then he said, said he could tell by my face that I was a whore and that if I hadn't been raped yet, it was an injustice. So this man in the same sentence talked about how, I guess the same paragraph talked about how I needed to find Jesus and find the way of Jesus while telling me that he viewed rape as a form of justice. This is the church. And we can talk about Josh Duggar and his exploitation of children. We can talk about Ravi Zacharias. Literally, I could go on all day. And you all know that I could go on all day about men who are using their power to sexually abuse, sexually harm women and children. This is not something that we are unfamiliar with. This is something that we're sick with in the church. And so I don't have to go. I just want to real quick, sorry to interrupt, but you say, I mean, we took those extreme things, but I want women to hear me and men the little things too. It's the little things, my daughter being told you can't be a pastor because you're a woman, the little things like submissive is a good thing. The Holy spirit was submissive or whatever. Like, I mean, it's those things because that is what creates that culture. Talk just a little bit about rape culture and church culture. That is huge. And this is hard. I know some people, they don't get that how hard, how damaging the complementarian church is to women. It is not a difference of biblical interpretation. It is so damaging and it creates rape culture. So talk about that, Megan. Yeah. So purity culture, so many of us grew up with this. Um, I remember being taught that my body was essentially an object. Um, In fact, when I was 12 years old, I was told to write a letter to my future husband um, about how my body was being saved for him, for his consumption essentially like and actually the words i wrote were not so far off from that i was like my gift has been unwrapped by any man and here it is to you as a gift this idea that my body first of all that my whole personhood was based in my body uh and 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 whether or not it was sexually pure but this idea that like it didn't even my sexuality didn't even belong to me it belonged to him and my job until i got married was to protect it at all costs and so i kept that letter um, until I got married. And of course, by that time I had deconstructed a lot of this and was like, ah, like, this is funny. And I gave that letter to my husband and he's like, this is heartbreaking. I am so sorry that you were taught that you were basically my property. And so when we're talking about purity culture, we're raised with these phrases, like don't show it if it's not on the market as if women's bodies were markets and you can touch what you want or this idea that don't be a stumbling block or boys will be boys or men can't control their thoughts. All of these ideas that are telling women that they're responsible for the thoughts and actions of men. And so I remember when I was 13 years old, I was on my very first mission trip. I had just been reprimanded by my youth pastor because, um, my shirt, when I raised my hands showed a small silver in my stomach. And he told me very explicitly, uh, this will make men do bad things. You better cover up. This is shameful. La di da. I remember feeling so much shame about it. And I just wore nothing but baggy clothes. I did not want to be seen as a stumbling block to anyone. And then later that week, a man 
sexually assaulted me. He came up and grabbed my breast and I was terrified and I was disgusted and I was petrified with fear. Yet I felt like I could not get help or tell anyone about it because I was just told previously that week that if something happened to me, it would be my fault. And so I thought it was my fault. For over a decade, I thought this was my fault. It was my shame. It was my, I did something wrong that made this man do this thing. This is literally, and this story that I'm telling you, this is not unique to me. No, that's what I was just going to say. It's the same story. I mean, it's not my story, but it's my, because I wasn't raised in the church, but it's my story because my daughter was, and because I I taught her this, it was a mom. I feel so much mom guilt, but it's like, she has the same story that she shared in our conversation. And I've had people texting me like, well, I didn't know that happened to her, that her butt was grabbed or what, like she felt like it was her fault. She was the one that was told to cover up her cleavage or to come, you know, not wear tight. It's the same story. And if we don't recognize that and the harm we're doing, oh yeah. Okay. Megan. Yes. So I was actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. So I was giving a talk to my church uh, two years ago about, and I was talking about this and I was like, I know people are going to be resistant to this idea that purity culture and rape culture are connected. And so I started by just telling stories where I had been sexually assaulted. And I told the story of that happening. And I, and I asked the audience, I'm like, why do you think this happened? And this woman in the audience responded and she said, because you weren't paying attention, you should have been like, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm like, okay, okay. Let me tell you another story. When I was 15, I was in a swimming pool and this, this stranger came up and groped my butt and like in a very vulgar way, why do you think this happened? And again, she said, you're swimming in the wrong swimming pools. And I'm like, okay. I'll tell another story. And so I told another story where I was sexually assaulted. And she again told me you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And even though she wasn't saying it was my clothes or whatever, she was saying it was my fault because I should have been more aware. And suddenly it hit her what she was saying. And she started sobbing. I remember feeling so uncomfortable and she's like, what have I been teaching my daughter? And it was this moment of breakthrough for her that I had to keep telling my story again and again until it connected. Wait a second. This has nothing to do with her. This has a lot to do with what men think they're entitled to that boys are being raised, that they're entitled to to, to touch women's bodies. And, and when that does happen, Oh, it's like, he can't help himself. He just has a sexual, like he's just so sexual. Um, Boys are so sexual. They can't control themselves. And that's literally what we're teaching girls that they're responsible for the actions of men and to hold their boyfriends back and to do this and to do this and do this, because if something happens to us, it's our fault. Um, Really what we should be talking about is not how you can prevent rape or sexual assault. The question is why do men rape? Why do they feel entitled to bodies? Why is it that we live in a society that one in three women are the survivor of assault, what between one in five and one in six are the survivor of rape or attempted rape. Why? And we why in the have... church and why in the church yeah. do we keep seeing so many of these things happening almost more so than society? I mean, again, it's the power. It's mm-hmm. the power. Only men can be pastors. Only men can be elders. It, it, why are we not seeing that? So right. keep going, Megan. This We're both passionate about this and I'm just going to mm, zip my No, mouth. I'm glad. I love your energetics. Another thing that I started, so as I'm doing this research, I'm first of all finding that this is consistent across the church. Any of you watching right now can think of at least several men or leaders in the church that you've heard of just in the few last few months of church leaders being sexual predators just in the last few months. Okay. So if we're seeing this again and again, why aren't we asking the question, why, 
Why is this happening so much? And so there's an excellent answer to this. There's a psycho, um, a psychoanalyst or psychologist named Lynn Yonak. Um, and she has written an article and does work about this uh, where she studies sexual assault and power differentials. And she says sexual assault is due to power differentials. And if we think about it, she gives of all these examples when we hear, um, like, let's use the example of Josh Duggar, him abusing Children. Okay. There's a huge power differential there. And also as a white man in the church, he is not facing consequences. When he did that to his younger sisters, when he sexually assaulted them, they're like, let's just pray for him and hope it goes away. This has not gone away. And, and, you know, if we think about Robbie Zacharias, the power differentials he had over those massage people again, and again, the story that we hear is a man in power who's been given that power, abusing that power. And so we need to really ask why is the church, if this is contributing to sexual assault, why is the church promoting such enormous power differentials and why are they so it's like they almost wrote power differentials into the gospel this idea that if women aren't silent and submissive then it's not the gospel i cannot tell you the number of times i've been told i'm not a christian i can't be a christian with you right now yeah (laughs) i can't be a christian and believe in feminism or be a feminist yeah i mean if we look at jesus that's who he was and i can go into all of the scripture of of why you, you do that beautifully in your book. Yeah. I mean, even talking about Mary and Martha, I mean, that's, yeah. well, I want to say that, but first I want to say, you know, the whole not being a Christian, which is also, I'm sure been told to both of us because we're affirming of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Well, then you can't be a Christian. I mean, that to me is a power thing too. Like why yeah. determination over a group of people to decide if they're in and out or we're better or worse than, or like we talked about the white supremacy. I mean, that's all related to the, the power and both of us start seeing our own complicity. Right. Um, but like you said, you go into your book, the biblical stories of the women that Jesus uplifted and women. Right. That, and I think the Mary and Martha thing, like you opened my eyes when you shared that story. Cause I'm like, I've never heard it preached like that. Yeah. So everyone knows the story of Mary and Martha, at least when I was taught as a little girl, it was like, I don't even know what the point of that was. It was like, I, I don't know what kind of narrative they were trying to spin. Cause it's certainly, I don't think is the narrative that I think the storyteller was trying to tell. Right. So we have the story of Mary and Martha in this culture. It's super patriarchal, far more patriarchal than what we have today. Women are not allowed to interact with men. They're not really allowed to leave the house. There's all of these really strict codes that keep women in the house in their place. They can't learn. They can't do all of these things. Um, and so, uh, we, we enter the story of, first of all, Jesus coming to Mary Martha's house with his disciples and Martha is being like the good woman, right? She's doing as she should. She's preparing the house. She's like getting things clean. She's making food, whatever, you know, she's preparing the house for Jesus and his disciples prepared to serve him, do her gender role, be, uh, you know, serving, but not in the room, not being part of it, just serve the men as they talk about whatever. And we can see these parallels today, like women in the kitchen, go serve the men, the beer and they're while they watch football or talk about whatever. And women just come and filter in anyway. So we have the story of Martha and she's doing what she's supposed to do, right? Like if Jesus is about gender roles, he should be like, Martha, great job. But what we see instead is Mary breaking with her, her prescribed gender role so hard. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is so offensive because women are not going to do that. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
she's not supposed to be sitting at the feet of Jesus because she's a woman. She shouldn't be learning or reading or anything that's like that. And she's in the presence of men. Like everything she is doing is wrong. According to their culture, according to their patriarchal gender norms, she is breaking all of the rules. She's being so offensive. So it makes sense that Martha's like, Hey, come help me in the kitchen. Like you're being bad. Stop. You're embarrassing me. You know, this kind of idea of like, you're not doing it right. And so Martha tells Jesus, come on, tell, tell Mary to get in here and help me and do what she's supposed to do. And Jesus turns to Martha and says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And I think in that one sentence, Jesus takes these terrible patriarchal ginger rolls and just flips them on their head. He's saying it's actually better when women sit at, you know, to learn to be a rabbi themselves, to be in the presence of men, to forsake their womanly duties. He's saying this is better. And so whenever people come against me, I'm like, I have chosen what is better. Like it will not be taken from me because what he literally says to Martha is Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And so I just remind myself all the time, I'm doing what's better. It will not be taken from me. You can tell me I'm going to hell and all these other things, but I truly believe this is the heart of God. And I'm not going to stop because I'm not supposed to be submitted to men. I'm supposed to be submitted to God. So I want to go back to your time in the world race. And even after the world race, you were involved in mission work and sex you really though kept being confronted with your white supremacy your white saviorism how you were you were um you know buying how your part in it so i want to talk about really when you woke up and were just like you know um i can't do this anymore and i i really need to start working on raising my voice and examining my complicity because i think like i said earlier the message i really want women to hear like it's almost, it's good. It's easier to be about white about feminism and like take that stand. But then I think this next level is so important for us as white women and any white women listening and in this wilderness and journey, like we have got to start dismantling our own racism. And as far as you and I have come in this journey, I know I'm still part of it. And that's why that book, me and white supremacy is so powerful because we will not arrive. We are still benefiting from it. And so share a little bit about more about that part of your story, because I think it's a word that women, white women need to hear. Yeah. So I think, I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but this whole idea that we like, because I have been oppressed as a woman, you kind of have trouble seeing yourself as an oppressor as well. Right. You don't want to believe that because no one wants to be, you know, no one wants to harm people. Um, no one wants to oppress other people, but it's such a necessary part of our journey because I have, and what I write in the, the end of the book is I talk about how, um, so often in this book, I was talking about power differentials. We just talked a lot about power differentials. We talked about how power differentials contribute to, um, you know, the, the sexual assault and sexual abuse of women, but at the same time, I hold power over others. If I am not aware of, of the power that I wield as a white woman, and I'm going to tell you a story here. I don't write about this in the book, but I think it's such an important story that, you know, you can't write everything in the book. You know, you have a limited amount of time. I had 60,000 words I had to keep to. Um, but one time, as a, a woman, I have been sexually assaulted before. And so I remember one time I came home, me and my friend came home to our house and there was, um, a black man that had a ladder up to our balcony. This was like 
five years ago. And so I was afraid because not only because of the condition I have of, um, being a woman, but there's, I think there was also a level of racism. This is a black man. He's dangerous. I've been told my whole life, this man is dangerous. And so I remember he, like, we started to pull into our driveway and immediately freaked out, um, and left. And he, you could tell he wanted to talk to us, but we were so afraid and we called the cops and back then we didn't realize how dangerous it is. Like we're talking about police brutality, right. And how so often these men, uh, the police have been weaponized against these men and women that the police have been weaponized against people of color. And we were invited to danger because we were afraid and we didn't ask questions. And so I remember like, eventually we found out like the cops called us back and they said, Oh, they're here to clean out your gutters. Cause we were renting at the time. And our, our landlord hadn't told us that there was men coming to clean our gutters. And so, but like, I look back at that experience and I'm like, I thought I was justified because men have held power over me, but not to see the way that I hold power over others as a white woman and using, uh, calling the police, which have, I mean, we hear every door day about police brutality and how this is not safe. And I remember me and my friend apologized profusely to this man and he had his son with him and we didn't see him at first. And his, his, the dad was like, I'm used to this. This happens all the time. It's okay. I understand, which is just heartbreaking. But I remember the son was not having it and he shouldn't have had it because we just put his life in danger because we made assumptions about what this man was doing because he was, you know, cleaning our gutters. And so that's an example of like where I want to repent and say that was wrong. I was using my power and privilege to harm others. And I didn't know that's what I was doing, but we need to examine this because there's a lot of other things I could have done. You know, we were safe in the car. Like he could have, we were safe in the car. And yet we felt like we needed to call the cops. We didn't try and understand. We just let our fear take over us and we weaponized a system against them. And so that's one example that I talk about, but like, even if we're talking about missions, which is so much of my story, if we look at the way that missions has been traditionally used, um, let's talk about there's, um, in the 15th century, there's something called the papal bulls and which were edicts that basically said that white folks or Christian folks could take over the land, of other people and claim it for a Christian monarch. And so uh, they did this and killed or converted anyone that didn't comply. So that was one of the ways that missions was used. If we talk about here in the United States um, and you know, the 18th century, this idea of manifest destiny, this idea that the Christian nation uh, needs to be the whole, you know, basically country or continent of the North America and how that went to the Supreme court because we were taking land from native Americans and the Supreme court ruled in the colonizers favor because they said, well, this is better for them because it's Christian. Like we will take this land because it's Christian. And so this is the roots in the history of missions of the white evangelical churches missions. And so I started to reflect on, okay, well, maybe when I was doing missions, I wasn't taking people's land and my ancestors certainly did. Yeah. I wasn't trying to kill people. My ancestors certainly did. And I need to be aware that this there's generational trauma and generational sin there, which I'll get into a little bit more. Um, but this idea that I even had Christian superiority, I had what you needed. 
Um, I think it's your problems because I am enlightened and you are not. And just the superiority there or like how so many people will go on missions to um, Central America and then say no immigrants in the United States. We don't want them. When, if we examine that, the United States has been interfering in Latin America and South America. And we were in Chile in 2019 during these mass protests, my husband and I, you know, we're trying to understand why we're all of these people were protesting. And it's because they have a constitution. I mean, there are so many injustices, but they have a constitution that was written by a military dictator named Pinochet. Um, And the reason Pinochet is in power is because the United States helped overthrow a democratically elected government and put this right wing um, military guy in power. And so now there's all of this instability in the region because the United States backed a dictator who was killing people. And so even if we don't know that, it's our responsibility to learn and to know and to do better and not be responsible. And, And so many people will say, well, that was my ancestors. That was like, you know, that was my parents. That wasn't me. Right. But that doesn't mean that the problem has gone away, that the sins of our parents still live on. Let's talk about, for example, generational um, wealth. So one of the biggest predictors in the United States of wealth is, um, is whether or not people can own a house. So historically, Black people um, have been denied the right to own a house due to redlining. They were denied mortgages and loans. And even on top of that, even if they're able to secure a mortgage, they would lose their house if they missed just one payment. So their house wasn't technically theirs until they finished paying it off. And so we have, uh, you know, and so that, that was just a couple, that was like last generation. That was my parents' generation. And so when we're wondering why there's, there's poverty and, and inequity, it's because the sins of, of my parents, of my grandparents, of my ancestors are living on and affecting the world today. So the, this is not just going to go away if I ignore it. Like this is going to continue. The system has been built for my people, for the privilege of white folks. And until I acknowledge it and start to uproot, to be for reparations, to train myself on anti-racism, to educate myself, this cycle is going to perpetuate until we are actively standing against it. And so that's been one of my biggest lessons. And I'm still learning. I'm still a beginner. We both are. I am and not, that's what I wanted to say. You're um, not an anti-racist. Yeah. I'm not either. We're trying to learn so much because we realize we can't speak up for women unless we do speak up for the BIPOC community. You know, we can't speak up for women and not speak up for the LGBTQ community. I mean, you just can't. And so that's why this is such an important component is learning from black women and learning from the LGBTQ community. And I know we have to wrap up here shortly, but I want to go back because you mentioned the book, The Me and White Supremacy. Like I encourage any, well, I think it's mostly women here listening today into both of our podcasts. Well, I don't know, maybe men, but it, men or women get that book because it helps you realize, even though you think you've made your good, you realize it, you realize your part in it and it helps you dig deeper. And it's not like a shaming. I mean, none of this is shaming us. I mean, we're working and learning and trying to dismantle this. And if we want better for our daughters, all daughters across the world, those women in the sex trafficking, this is part of the dismantling. I also want to, like, if we're talking about human trafficking, this drives me crazy about people who claim they care about human trafficking. If we're looking at, you know, say trafficking in the United States, who's being trafficked? It's BIPOC, it's kids. And, you know, this is something I talk about in the book, like conservatives for so long, they're against uh, one of, you know, their tenants is like, we don't want to pay for social programs because we don't want welfare queens or whatever. 
I don't want my taxes to pay for social programs. But what I discovered in working with trafficked women here in the United States is that, you know, anywhere from 60 to 80% of them come from the foster care system. And the reason they entered the foster care system is because their parents are vulnerable. So if we're talking about programs, there's, there's studies that show if we help struggling families, there's not only less crime, there's less incarceration, there's less children being trafficked as well. And so we really need to acknowledge that if we want a society with less trafficking here in the United States. The way we do that is we give and vote for funding for social programs that help struggling families. We vote for healthcare. We vote for things that actually help our society and help us grow um, instead of things that are uh, condemning those in poverty for being in poverty. Yeah. Back to what you said, like what is the root cause that we need to be reparations and pray right. into these communities? Yes. Right. Okay, so let's ask why would someone enter foster care. And so uh, there's so many different reasons that's a child. It could be because that their parents are struggling to provide for their children. It could be neglect because maybe they're working so many jobs and they're exhausted. It could be they have generational trauma because yeah. their ancestors and them today are being, you know, lynched. Yeah. That is, it's so funny that we're willing to understand PTSD, this trauma that people might bring back from war, but not understand the trauma that black people have been living with. Yeah. Uh, since forever. And so they might be having trauma and not being able to care for their children all because of trauma. There might be addiction, but we're, we got to talk about the, what leads to addiction. We need to give money to, you know, like addiction things. And so all the questions is why, 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 why are kids in foster care? Not let's have white people save and fix the problem. We're a big part of why there's a problem in the first place. And in the Bible in Isaiah, it talks about um, Isaiah one, it, it talks about how these believe, you know, these people like to serve God, they're like, I, you know, they're having their festivals and they're having their songs and they're having their prayers. And God says, I don't want your songs and I don't want your prayers. And I don't want all of these like feasts and festivals. What I want is for you to wash your bloody hands and learn to do right. And I think that is the story of us is we need to wash our bloody hands, look at our complicity and why people are harmed yeah. and then learn to do right, repent and learn to do right. And so I'm in the journey of repenting and learning to do right. If you asked me if I was for reparations, you know, even three years ago when I was beginning to do this work, I would have said no. Mm-hmm. And if you asked me if I was for reparations today, I'm like, yes, not only am I for it, I think it's necessary for us to heal the society. And there, there's also, um, I haven't read this book yet, but um, there's a book by... Gosh, my husband's reading it right now. And so he's telling me about it. Goodness gracious. I can't remember it. That's okay. That's what happens when you're live. (laughs) I know. But the idea that she talks about, it's not, the book isn't the true cost. It's like what something about the cost of racism in the United States. And she says that it's like our GDP would be something like billions of dollars higher if we had addressed racial inequity in our nation. And so that is also um, researchers who study women's empowerment have found a nation's GDP increases drastically when women are. So an equitable society means not only a better society for those who are being oppressed, but it also is a better society for all. So when we lift those on the margins, then we live in a better society. And so we really need to examine our complicity. And that's even a biblical tenet that I think we don't look over. Like people talk about powers and principalities and they're like, oh, this is about demons. No, I think this is about patriarchy and white supremacy. What is a power and principality except white supremacy and patriarchy in our pews? That is a power and principality. It's not against flesh and blood. 
Yes. It's against those powers. I was just thinking, gosh, could we just chat all day, Megan? Like we could. <laughs> like I don't even know why I kind of wrote an outline because we're just we're we're talking, but we're but we both have similar passions, but we both have so far to go. And that's what I want my audience, both of our audiences and listeners and followers and all that to just understand. But we're we're with you on the journey, but we all have so far to go with it. So two more questions, Megan, and then we'll wrap up because I know you have a full day of promoting your book and the excitement there. Yeah. So with releasing your book, what is your goal with it? Like, what do you want to see have happen? I want, I mean, there's a lot of goals that I have, but I think my, one of my biggest goals is I want people to feel seen. Uh, I want women to feel seen that what happened to you is not right. And it's not okay. And it's not your fault. And you don't have to live according to others, people's expectations. I want to set women free from that idea that uh, we have to shrink or be small because that's biblical. Cause I don't think that's biblical. No. That's one of the biggest things, but I think ultimately even bigger than that is I want people to ask the question, why, if these things are wrong about society, if we have human trafficking, if we have the assault rates that we do, um, here in the United States and on a global scale, why? And what is our complicity in upholding a system that is teaching that is teaching men that they might be entitled to women's bodies or teaching women that they need to be silent and cover up? What it, What is the why and how are we responsible? How can we find the ways that our complicity, because if we're not willing to look at our own hands, our own bloody hands, then it's not going to get better. And I think Again and again, that's what we see in scripture is like, look at your hands. Are they clean? Okay, then learn how to do right. Repent. Um, I think so many of these verses have been twisted, but I think it's ultimately about loving our neighbors ourselves, And we can't do that until we look at the ways that we might unintentionally harm one another through supporting systems that exploit people. And I think your book beautifully conveys that. And I know that that is the effect it's going to have. And women are going to feel seen and heard in their own journey, but also be pushed to dig farther and keep on pushing through that uncomfortable space of the liberation of other women. So my last question, which is kind of how we started, just like, it's really hard to start speaking up and using your voice because women we've been, that have been raised in this church of making ourselves small, being submissive, and then finally speaking up and using your voice, you get backlash. So what would you say to other women that are just starting maybe to find their voice or speak up? And it's, it's some toughness ahead. I had a friend message me last night that is trying to find her way to start doing that. And she said, so tell me how you develop thick skin. And I was <laughs> like, um, I haven't, I don't have that answer at all. So you, I'd love to hear your advice for women starting that journey and speaking up. Yeah. So I think, okay, I have two main points. I think number one, what was so powerful in my story was to know that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we're not alone. What's happening to women it's not unique. And that's what I found. Like that is, that is our story as, as women around the world. A lot of us are survivors of sexual violence. A lot of us are survivors of physical violence. A lot of us are survivors of emotional abuse telling us that we need to submit and be silent. And so I think to know that you're not alone is it's so important. And I think, so if you're, you know, find those that have experienced it, be brave, talk about it with your friends and family, have a support system 
where you can have these conversations. And there's so many places, like maybe you don't know those people personally, but there's a lot of places online where you can find that. And I think it's really important even for those on the margin to find safe spaces. Like if you are, you know, a black woman, find a, a safe place where you can talk to black women about what's happening and what you've experienced. Um, you know, if you're same thing, if you're Asian or queer, or there's places where you can get support. And I think that support is so essential to find. And so that would be my first piece of advice is, is find the support because if I didn't have support from my friends or my family or my husband, when those friends and other family members disowned me or told me they couldn't be tied to me anymore. I don't think I could have made it through if I didn't have any support systems. So I think that's number one is, is find a way to get that support. Um, and I, and go to a therapist. I love therapy. Um, therapy as well. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, but number two, I would say, don't remember your critics or those who speak against you. Uh, I mean, obviously there's an FDR quote that talks about, it's not the critic who counts, but more than that, it's like, remember who you speak for. I'm not, I'm not talking for Joe Schmo that told me I should be raped because of my face, you know, like you can say that, but ultimately that my work isn't for you. My work is for women around the globe who have been objectified, who have been harmed, who have been, uh, had violence committed against them. Um, and so I'm remembering them when I do my work, they can say what they want, but I'm not speaking for you. I'm speaking for women and, and just remembering again and again, who do you speak for? Not who comes against you, but who do you speak for? And that's something that I keep on coming back to again and again, when I get, um, some nasty emails and messages and, and maybe even that coming from my friends or family, because ultimately it's not, it's not about me. It's, it's, it's about liberation for all people. I appreciate that. I'm listening and I'm taking those words in because I don't know. I mean, I told my friend, like, I don't have thick skin and I'm not sure I ever will. I think it will rejection, hard words will always hurt. I'm not sure God wants us to have, Jesus wants us to have thick skin, but I think he wants us to remember again, who are we serving? Right. Um, who are we fighting for? Who are, who's, a, who, what, what is the higher, greater purpose here? And we're not answering to men um, mm -hmm. or women that may get offended by our message. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you, Megan. I appreciate your words, your voice, your speaking up. Tell everybody where you can be found. Again, your book, your book is Women Rising. You can see all my little marks here, women, or I've highlighted lots of it. Learning to listen, reclaiming our voice, women rising. You can find me on social media at Megan Chance. You can find me at meganchance.com. And if you guys could pre or not pre-order, I've been saying that for so long. If you could order the book because it is out today, that would mean the world. And you also, my fellow podcast sister host, you have your own podcast that if you don't, if, tell us about your podcast and what it is and all of that. Yeah, so I have a podcast called Faith and Feminism. It's, it's talking about faith and feminism. That's right. And it's great. You're just one of yeah. the first I started listening to when I started mine. Yeah. Um, I think that's when we started maybe first talking a couple of years ago. I don't even know. But you also have a face. You have a Facebook and Instagram separate from your name. Yeah. So you can go find you there and join in conversations with other women exploring lots of issues surrounded by faith and feminism. All right, yeah. Megan. How are you celebrating the rest of the day? We are going to a fancy lunch in about half an hour. So, all right. Yeah. Well, I love and appreciate you, Megan. Thank you for all you do and for your voice. Thank you for having me.